0: Now, I heard a sermon a few years back by Timothy Keller that was based on this text, and it really kind of stuck with me. It really was impactful for me in a meaningful way. And I've always kind of wanted to and intended to kind of circle back and, and dive deeper into that text and explore that text some more and to potentially uh, teach on that text. And so here we are. I'm, I'm excited to be able to do that with you today. I hope that the message that we hear today will be as encouraging and edifying for you as it has been for me this past week as I've really been um, digging into this text. <clears throat> Before we go there, let me, let me pray for us briefly. Heavenly Father, we just thank you this morning for your goodness and for your grace in our lives. We thank you for your gospel. We thank you for your word and the effects that it has on our hearts and on our lives. God, would you use your word now to uh, change us, to challenge us, to encourage us, Would you do all these things in Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, we're right in the middle of the NBA Finals, of course, as uh, the Cleveland Cavaliers tomorrow evening will uh, try to continue clawing their way back into the series against the Golden State Warriors, and we'll uh, see what happens. I'm sure it'll be quite a battle. But there's often a lot of debate this time of year about, about who's the greatest, about who is the greatest and most accomplished basketball player of all time. And whether you like him or not, LeBron James is certainly a part of that conversation. Steph Curry is certainly moving in that direction as his career progresses. But many would say that Michael Jordan is still the reigning king in that regard. Jordan's legacy on the basketball court is is really quite incredible. This guy had six NBA titles, five MVPs, ten scoring titles, and 14 all-star appearances. So when it comes to the game of basketball, Michael Jordan has seen it all. Michael Jordan has done it all. But what's fascinating about Michael Jordan these days is the rocky road that he seems to be facing since his retirement about a decade ago. Jordan turned 50 a couple years back and ESPN they ran a story about him at that time. And what's most interesting perhaps about that article is how it paints a picture that Jordan is not doing so well in his retirement. He seems to be struggling in a variety of ways now that he's no longer in the spotlight day in and day out. You see, for almost three decades, Jordan dominated this sport. He lived for the next challenge. He lived for the next conquest. He lived for the next performance and the next standing ovation. But now, with all that gone and in the past, the article, it gives the impression that Jordan is quite unsettled and unsatisfied in his life at this point. In fact, since his retirement, some suggest that he's been, been living a pretty fast and a pretty desperate life, slipping into various activities and addictions and doing whatever he can to fill the void in his life that his retirement has, has created. You see, in Jordan's own words, his self-esteem, his very, identi- his very identity has been tied directly to his performance on the basketball court for virtually his entire life. But now, that was, that was all gone. That's all gone now. And when asked how he replaces that in his life at this stage, now that he's retired, Jordan said, you don't. And you can't. He said, I'd give up everything right now, everything that I have right now. And he has much right now. He has a financial empire, in fact, right now. But he says, I'd give it all up right now to go back and to play the game of basketball again. Again. Now the writer of this article suggests that Jordan at this point in his life is struggling because he deeply and desperately needs to know that he's that he's still significant. He needs to know that he's still relevant. He needs to know what people are saying about him. He needs to know these things the author suggests like a hungry vein needs its needle. Interestingly enough, this is not an unusual storyline among the rich and the famous and the powerful who can be seen again and again struggling to find fulfillment and satisfaction in their lives despite all they have, despite all they've seen and all they've done and all they've accomplished. Take Madonna, for example. In an interview with Vogue magazine from a few years back, listen to how she describes what motivates her in her life and what, what keeps her pushing forward and pressing on. She says, "'My drive in life comes from the fear of being mediocre. That's always pushing me. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. But then not too long after that, I can't help but feel that I'm still mediocre and uninteresting, unless I do something else. Because even though I've become somebody, I have to prove again that I'm still somebody. My struggle has never ended,' she says. And I guess it never will. Madonna wakes up to a new day, and no matter what she accomplished yesterday or last week or last year, she feels she needs to to prove herself again today. She needs to show the watching world again today that she's still somebody and that she's still special. And you may be thinking, wow, that sounds pretty sad. That sounds a bit tragic, in fact but I'd suggest to you that it also sounds pretty self-aware. You may, be, may also be thinking that you and I are worlds apart from people like Michael Jordan and, and Madonna, and in many respects, that's quite true. But in other respects, the differences between them and us are far slimmer than you might think. After all, fundamentally, we want and need the same things that they're going after. Just like they are, we are most certainly seeking approval an affirmation and acceptance from a watching world. Just like they are, we are most certainly performing in various ways in our lives in search of significance and, and self-worth. But we're just doing it on a much smaller scale, aren't we? For a much smaller audience in our own little worlds, without all the fame and without all the fanfare. But deep down just like them, we're all looking again and again to our own performance, to our own accomplishments in our lives, whatever those may be, in order to feel that our lives matter and in order to feel that we matter. Do you ever feel that way? Do you ever feel like you're in this perpetual mode of trying to prove yourself, trying to perform and measure up, hoping that others will see you a certain way? hoping that you might see yourself a certain way. Do you ever feel that way in your career, in your academics, in your relationships, and in your life? I know I struggle with this at times. In fact, I lived most of my life this way, largely without even realizing what I was doing. I was living my life and making many of my decisions based on how they would be perceived and affirmed by those around me. I wanted people to think I was interesting. I wanted people to think that I was successful. I wanted people's acceptance and approval, and I lived my life pursuing those things, sometimes in subtle ways, but sometimes in not-so-subtle ways. This is one of the reasons I'm looking forward to exploring this passage together today because I think it's a struggle for each and every one of us, and Paul in this passage has something Significant to say to us about this very thing, I think. Paul is going to show us in this passage, at least in part, why every single one of us, no matter who you are or what you have or or how much you've done, we all struggle in these same sorts of ways. Now, in verses three and four of this passage, Paul uses the word judge three times in those two verses. He's talking about judging and being judged and those who are doing the judging. And we know what a judge does, right? A judge assesses, a judge evaluates, a judge renders a verdict either for a person or against a person based on the evidence that's presented to the judge about that person. And as we go about our lives, looking around us in the city of Seattle in the year 2017, there are certainly a lot of judges out there, to be sure. People are most certainly assessing and evaluating one another at every turn. People are assessing and evaluating you at every turn. People are weighing the evidence that you are presenting to them about yourself and about your life. And so you're being evaluated and judged each and every day on the basis of your looks, on the basis of your waistline, you're being evaluated and judged each and every day on the basis of your clothing and your car and your career. You're being evaluated and judged on the basis of your bank accounts and your, and your social media accounts. You're being evaluated on the basis of who you associate with and, and how you associate with them. The many judges around us are assessing our performance. They are evaluating the evidence and they are passing judgment and rendering verdicts based on that evidence. Of course, you know this. This should come really as no surprise, if we're going to be honest, because at some level, at some level, we're all doing this. We all do this in some form or in some fashion. I'm not sure there's ever been a time in which people have been more evaluated and more judged than in this highly divided and in this highly digital age in which we find ourselves. And so what I'd like to ask you this morning is, is how do you handle all this? Does this affect you? How does this affect you? Should it affect you? Do you ignore it? Do you worry about it? Does it change the ways that you're living your life? One of the things the Apostle Paul is going to show us here is that if we're not careful, we can end up living our lives day in and day out like we're in in this sort of ongoing trial in a courtroom, always performing for this judge or that judge, always trying to present evidence in favor of ourselves and our lives, all to get a verdict from them that we feel that we need. And Paul has something to say to us as well about why we're so prone to this sort of thing. Paul, in fact, has something fascinating to say to us, I think, in this passage about the human ego and about its brokenness. And about how the Christian identity, as we press into it, is altogether different than than how any other type of identity is formed and and fueled. Paul says in verse 6, he says, don't be puffed up. He says, don't be puffed up one against the other. And at first glance, it sounds a lot like Paul is saying, don't be prideful, right? Don't be proud. And he most definitely is saying that. He's indeed saying, watch out for Watch out for pride, but he's saying much more than that too in verse 6. And we know that's the case because the word Paul uses here is not the normal word used in the Greek language to mean prideful or, or proud. It's a different word altogether. The word translated as puffed up in your ESV translation in verse 6 quite literally means to be, to be over-inflated. It means to be swollen or inflamed it gives the sense of something being distended or bloated beyond its proper size. And that's some pretty interesting imagery, isn't it? Think about this with me. If something is overinflated, it's not really being filled up with anything solid. It's being filled up with air, right? It's being puffed up. And what this means is that even as it may appear bigger from the outside, it remains essentially empty on the inside. In fact, this word translated as puffed up, it kind of evokes an image of an organ within the human body that is swollen up and and ready to burst because it has so much air that's been pumped into it. It's overinflated, it's distended, it's inflamed because it's been inflated beyond its proper capacity. It's been inflated beyond its proper dimensions. And what's fascinating here, I think, is how the Apostle Paul chooses and uses this rather unusual word to teach us something about the natural condition of the human ego. He's going to teach us something here about our self-image and our, and our self-esteem. And what he's going to be telling us here is that there's something quite wrong with it. He's going to show us that the human ego is in a fragile state, it's in a precarious state, and at times it's in a painful state. And one of the main ways that we know there's something wrong with it is because the human ego is constantly drawing attention to itself. If you think about it, when there's something wrong with a physical part of the body, it lets you know about it, right? If you drop something really heavy on your toe, your toe lets you know about it. It calls attention to itself and to the situation. But if your toe is functioning normally, you don't really even notice it, right? You don't, you don't normally think about it. You never really walk around going about your day saying, wow, my, my toe is really working fantastic today. But the human ego and our, our own self-image is terribly broken. It's always calling attention to itself. Every single day, it's drawing attention to, to how you look, to how you feel, to how people are treating you. And I think this may be why, at times, it seems to be such a struggle for some of us to get through the day without feeling snubbed or slighted over something that happened. This is why, at times, it seems so hard to go through the day without feeling ignored or insulted or, or emotionally injured in one way or another. This is why, at times, it's hard to get through the day without passing a mirror and either admiring ourselves or cringing at ourselves. The broken human ego which has been marred by sin is always calling attention to itself, always needing and wanting more, always seeking and striving for a favorable verdict from those around us. Because that's what it needs to keep itself puffed up and inflated. That's what it needs to feel valuable and significant. We have this emptiness on the inside that we try desperately to fill in a variety of ways, but the Apostle Paul is going to show us that if you and I are looking to the wrong things to fill us up, we're doing nothing more than pumping air into that emptiness. And it can be a fragile and at times a painful way to live. This is why Michael Jordan seems so unsettled in spite of all he has, all he's done, Yesterday's approval and applause are simply not enough because the ego demands a new verdict on this day and on every day. This is why Madonna feels the need to prove herself to be somebody special again, even though yesterday she says she had reached the point of believing that she was indeed somebody special. The human ego is unquenchable in its appetite for a fresh verdict of approval and praise because that's how it seeks to fill its emptiness and to ease its discomfort. Another way the human ego tries to fill its emptiness and ease its discomfort is through comparison, by comparing itself to to other people. That's why in verse 6, when Paul says, don't be puffed up, he's not saying that in some uh, isolated or individualized sense. Rather, he says, don't be puffed up, one against the other. And this is our natural tendency, really. We compare, we contrast, we compete. We bolster our own self-esteem, we inflate our own self-image based on how we measure up to other people. And it becomes less about what kind of person we actually are and more about what kind of person we're comparing ourselves to. We look out in the world and we say, well, I must not be so bad because, because that guy over there, he's, he's really bad. I must be doing pretty well. I, I do these things and, and those people don't. I, I have these things and those people don't. C.S. Lewis says something very insightful about this type of thing. He says, this type of comparison, if you're not careful, it leads to giving you pleasure, not because you have something or have achieved something. Rather, he says, it leads to giving you pleasure because you have more of, something than th- more of that something than those around you. He says, quote, Pride gets no pleasure out of having something only out of having more of it than the next man. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. So Lewis is saying, you may think you're building your self-image and your self-esteem on the fact that you're smart or uh, successful or physically attractive, but what you're really building your self-image and your self-esteem on is being more smart, more intelligent, more successful, and more attractive than other people. And we often do these things very subtly and very subversively and even at times unconsciously as we feed the demands of our egos and as we artificially inflate our own self-esteem. But here's one of the greatest dangers in all this that we need to be aware of. These comparisons to others that we make in our minds, they're they are quite often far from Objective. And as a result, they're, they're quite often far from accurate as well. We are easily self-deceived in our assessments, both of others and of ourselves. We do not always see these things clearly because at some level, deep down, we don't necessarily want to see these things clearly. Do you know that if you're, not like, if you're like most people, then you are way above average at just about everything that you do? Get this, when researchers asked over a million high school students how well they treated their peers, 60% of the students believed they were in the top 10%. And 25% rated themselves in the top 1%. They asked the same question of college professors, and interestingly enough, this group was nearly as biased about themselves as the high school students were. Only 2% rated themselves below average. 10% rated themselves as average, 63% above average, while 25% rated themselves as truly exceptional. Now, those are some interesting numbers. Those numbers don't really seem to add up so well. And it flows from a fundamentally broken ego that's doing whatever it can to keep itself inflated and to to keep itself appearing bigger from the outside than it actually is and than it actually feels on the inside. One of the researchers summarized the data in this way. He said, it's it's the great contradiction that the average person believes he is a far better person than the average person. One of the clearest conclusions of the social science research is that we think better of ourselves than we really are and that we see our own faults only in faint black and white while seeing the faults of others in vivid color. We assume the worst in others while assuming the best in ourselves and we all do this really at some level but but are you aware that you do it can you see that Do you see that in yourself we need to see this in ourselves because there are some some significant implications if we don't you see if we have too high a view of ourselves in this way it will inevitably lead to pride and a false sense of of superiority If we have too high a view of ourselves, we will inevitably use that inflated view of ourselves as the basis for comparing ourselves to others, and as the basis for looking down on others and pointing fingers at others and passing judgment on others. This is dangerous and destructive in every way, and it explains at times how we can think we're always right and they're always wrong. It explains at times why we think we always know best and and they don't. This is why at times we think we're better than other people and more important than other people. All of these things flowing from a distorted view of ourselves. All of these things fueled by a very broken and needy human ego. But there's another great danger in all this too. What happens when you lose the things in your life that your ego is looking to to keep itself puffed up and, in, and inflated in the first place? Think about this. Anything that is puffed up and, and over inflated is necessarily in, in continual danger of being deflated. The slightest poke or puncture or pressure can really burst that bubble, can it? And so how easy it can be for some of us to go from thinking that we're really awesome one day to thinking the next day that we're a failure or a loser. How easy it can be to go from having too high a view of ourselves to having too low of a, a view of ourselves. Many people at times seem to really hate themselves. They tell themselves they hate themselves. They tell you they hate themselves. They're desperately deflated but to be deflated means you were once inflated, but, but something happened. Think about it. If your sense of self-worth and self-esteem comes from comparing yourself to others, from judging others, from thinking you're better than those around you, what happens when you come into contact with those who are better than you and smarter than you and, and stronger than you and more attractive than you? And, of course, you will come across such people in a big city like Seattle. And either you'll need to find a way to live in denial of that reality or you will find yourself pierced and punctured and deflated by that reality. And when the bubble bursts, your view of yourself, it can take a pretty dangerous hit. Instead of being overinflated and feeling pretty good about yourself, you instead feel deflated and and you feel quite terrible about yourself. And it's all too easy to end up living our lives kind of moving back and forth along this spectrum from feeling inflated one day to feeling deflated the next, depending on who we're with and and what we're doing and depending on how well it's going. But here's something critical I think we need to see about all this. If the broken human ego is never filled up with anything of substance, then to be deflated and to be inflated are really just two sides of the very same coin. They're really just two different states of internal emptiness. This means that to have a superiority complex or an inferiority complex are not all that different from one another. They're both the result of being internally empty and and looking to the wrong things to, to fill us up. And so that's Paul kind of diagnosing the problem for us, and it's a big problem. It, it all sounds pretty negative, in fact, at this point. You know, the other day, my wife Carol said to me uh, that maybe I talk too much in my sermons about how bad we are, about how broken and depraved we are. But the truth is, I'm honestly just tracking along with what the Bible says about us, and it has a lot to say about us in that regard. And Paul is most definitely never shy about telling us the bad news about ourselves and about this human condition in which we find ourselves, because without an understanding and an acknowledgement of the bad news, you and I will never be truly transformed by, by the good news. But Paul, he always turns a corner for us, doesn't he? Or perhaps more accurately, accurately, the gospel. The gospel always turns a corner for us, doesn't it? What Paul does here is he says, let me show you how I live this out. In verses 3 and 4, Paul says, let me show you how the gospel informs my approach to life. Let me show you in very practical terms how my identity and how my self-image are renewed and redeemed by the gospel each and every day. In verse 3, he says, with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. Paul is saying, what you think of me, your evaluations of me, your assessments of me make no difference to me. They're not actually affecting my life. And Paul says this because he knows that the only verdict that matters, the only verdict that he needs most does not come from other people. You see, Paul's identity was not tied to other people's opinion of him, whether those opinions were good or whether they were bad. He refused to allow himself to be drawn back into the courtroom and to put himself back on trial before judges who did not matter. And many in our society today would strongly affirm what Paul is saying here. They'd say, absolutely, it does not not matter what other people think or say about you. What matters is what you think about yourself. What matters is what you tell yourself and say to yourself. What matters is what what you believe about yourself. They say you need to see that you're a great person. You need to know how wonderful you are on the inside. You need to build and bolster your identity and your self-esteem based on your your own standards, not the standards of others. But look at what Paul says. He says says, don't do it. He says don't look to yourself or your own standards or your own feelings or your own perceptions to try to make this right. In verse 4, Paul says your judgment of me does not matter to me. And then he immediately follows that with something quite interesting. He says, my judgment of myself does not matter to me either. Right after Paul says, I don't care what you think, he says, I don't care what I think either. Paul's identity, his self-esteem, was not tied to other people's opinion of him. And get this, it was not tied to his own opinion of himself either and this is a unique approach this is a game changer in a lot of ways if we'll press into what the Apostle Paul is saying here and what he'll be saying in just a moment but we often think our identity must be tied either to what others think about us or to what we think about ourselves or some combination of the two But Paul says don't fall for it don't do it he says they're both traps Paul knew full well the very broken and deceptive state of the human ego including his own, and that's why he knew he could not fully trust his assessments either of others or even of himself. So he says, I'm not going to play that game. I won't do it. I refuse to judge myself because I know it's all too easy to deceive and to to mislead myself. Because if we're going to be honest, chances are that nobody has lied to you, Nobody has hurt you. Nobody has deceived you in your life more than you have. Unless you realize that, and until you realize that, you'll go on trusting in your feelings and your evaluations of yourself, and they will continue to lead you astray, and they will continue to to let you down. Paul is really off the charts with all this. This is way outside the box of normal human uh, thinking. Paul says, your opinion of me does not matter, and he says, my opinion of myself does not matter either. We don't normally think this way at all, but Paul says we need to be thinking this way because it can truly transform our hearts and our lives. In fact, this is why in 1 Timothy, Paul could say on the one hand, I am the chief of sinners. I am the worst of the worst. While at the very same time, maintaining incredible confidence and poise and productivity in his life and in his ministry. When Paul says, I don't let you judge me, I don't even judge myself, he's, he's saying I'm well aware of my sins, and I'm not afraid to be open and honest about them, but I no longer connect those sins to my identity. I'm not going to play that game any longer. I will not allow my sin to accuse me or, or define me or to render any verdict against me. Paul does not look at the sin in his life and say, Oh, look at what I did this time. That was really bad. And therefore, I'm a bad person. Likewise, he doesn't say, Look at this great thing that I did over here. Therefore, I'm a a good person. He's able to look honestly both at the depths of his sin and the heights of his successes without connecting either of them to himself and to his identity. Or to what God had called him to do. Paul had reached the point where his ego was not drawing any more attention to itself than any other part of the human body. And as a result, whether he had done something wrong or whether he had done something right, he refused to connect those things anymore to how he was regarding himself. Now, that sounds pretty interesting, right? In a way, it sounds pretty liberating, in fact. But how does this actually work? How can we approach our lives in this sort of way, more like the Apostle Paul? It seems pretty straightforward in principle, but we know that does not mean that it's easy to put into practice on a consistent basis, because as we talked about, the fallen human ego wants to draw us again and again back into the courtroom and to put us back on trial seeking a fresh verdict of approval and praise from those around us. But for Paul, the way we approach this, the way we really this really comes alive in our hearts is not so much by doing or trying anything as much as it's a matter of seeing and savoring and celebrating who Jesus is and, and why he came and, and what he did and how he did it and these sorts of things. Right after Paul says in verse 3, how you judge me does not matter and how I judge myself does not matter, he says in verse 4, For it is the Lord who judges me. It is the Lord who judges me. He's already said, I don't care what you think. He said, I don't care what I think. And now he says, I only really care what the Lord thinks. Because it's only the Lord who judges me. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in a courtroom, but if you have, it's hard not to be a little bit intimidated by the judge. The judge never really sits at a desk, um, down on the level of the defendant, right? The judge is always sitting up high on his bench. He's always sitting up high, kind of looking down on the defendant. The defendant's down low, looking looking up at the judge. And it's no different with our Lord, is it? He was seated on high. He was seated on high, looking down, looking down at the mess that we've made of this world. Looking down at the mess we've made of our lives looking down at our self-centered and our self-serving hearts. And he could have rightly and justly given us exactly what we deserved. He could have rightly and justly given us the judgment of eternal separation from, from he who is our only source of love and life and hope. But this judge of ours, our Lord, the only judge who matters, he didn't stay on high looking down. He didn't give up on us because we had no real case to make before him. He didn't remain dis- distant or detached or disinterested because of our sin and our rebellion against him. No, this judge, he, he shocks everyone. This judge, he, he stepped down from the bench. As we saw last week in Philippians chapter 2, though Jesus was and is God, he nevertheless came down. He took on human form and he moved towards us, in spite of us. And in the most astounding and astonishing act of all human history, when the judge stepped down from the bench and moved toward us, towards us, he did not come to bring judgment against us, Rather, this judge came down off the bench to be judged for us. Our judge, our Jesus, came to be judged in our place for our sins so that you and I, by faith, might never have to be. Jesus said, I'm not going to stay above you. I'm going to get below you. I'm going to take on what you deserve so that every, every single charge against you can be dismissed. And that's exactly what went down at the cross. And that's exactly what happens when you put your trust and your faith in Jesus. And as a result, as Christians, our judgment is in the past. The trial is over. The verdict is in. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul is teaching us in this passage that if we're not looking to the right judge Life becomes this sort of never ending litigation. It becomes this sort of ongoing courtroom trial where we're in this constant mode of performing and presenting evidence and building our case in favor of ourselves and our lives. But what happens is we end up moving from one verdict to the next, like Michael Jordan, like Madonna. Performing, presenting evidence, building our case, but never knowing for sure how much evidence is enough. Never knowing deep down if we actually have done enough to justify any lasting verdict in our favor. And as a result, some days we feel like we're winning the trial, and other days we feel like we're losing it. It's a precarious and at times painful way to live. And Paul would say it's because you're performing for the wrong judges and you're performing for verdicts that you actually do not need. Friends, here is one of the most amazing and beautiful things about the Christian faith that Paul is reminding us of in this passage. Virtually every other worldview, virtually every other religion in the world says you need to try really hard in your life. You need to to perform. You need to, to measure up. And then and only then do you get a verdict that's based on that performance that you gave. According to the world, your performance leads to your verdict. But it's only in the gospel of Jesus Christ that you and I receive the verdict before the performance. It's only in the gospel of Jesus Christ that you and I receive the verdict that is independent of our performance. And as a result, it's no longer the performance that leads to the verdict. Rather, in the gospel, it's the verdict that actually leads to and fuels the performance. And the verdict is that you are forgiven, you are loved, you are significant, you are adopted, you are redeemed, and you are new. It's now the verdict. It's now that verdict that leads to the performance. It's that verdict that fuels and energizes everything that we do. And this means that the trial is over, so we can stop presenting the evidence. We can stop comparing and uh, contrasting and competing. Instead, we can simply do things for the joy of doing them. We can love and serve others simply to love and serve others. We can live our lives freely and boldly out of an overflowing gratitude for this judge who would step down off the bench and be judged in our place. And so let's live this out together. We need each other in this in every way. Let's not allow ourselves to be drawn back into the courtroom again and again by our broken and hungry egos. Because the only verdict that matters, the only verdict we truly need has already been rendered My dear Christian, it's only the Lord who judges you and he has spoken and he has said, you are my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. The verdict is in. The verdict is final. And as a result, court is adjourned. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the power of your word. We thank you. That when your word is uh, proclaimed, it does not return to you void, but it accomplishes all that you intend and purpose for it. And so would you do that now, Lord? Would you bring these truths alive in our hearts in meaningful and practical ways? Thank you, Father, for this important reminder today that our searching and striving can end, that we can stop performing for verdicts that we do not need from judges who do not matter. Would we live our lives boldly and differently in light of the only verdict we need and the only verdict that matters, that you love us, that you accept us, and that you celebrate us. In Jesus' name, amen.